Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Startups and entrepreneurs have been around since the beginning of time, but it was only in the last several decades that venture capitalists became key players in the world of business and investing. Ronan Nier is a general partner at Viola Ventures, and on this special two-part episode of Future of Tech, he lets us in on what it really means to be a VC today. On part one, Ronan gives us an overview of the history of venture capital, and he explains how the world of tech innovation and entrepreneurship was what gave birth to the venture capitalist. He also divulges exactly how VCs make decisions on who and what to invest in, and explains why AAR is the key metric to look at when predicting the health of a high-growth company. Enjoy part one. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So I'd like to welcome to this uh, new episode of Future of Tech, Ronan Nier, who is uh, actually, I can say, already an old friend. We've met uh, a year ago, more or less, before all this uh, havoc of uh, COVID and spoke lengthily on uh, various issues, which uh, probably some of them will share with the, our uh, listeners and audience today. But before we start, as always, Ronan, like... Uh, how did it all start from your end? How did you find yourself uh, dealing with technology and uh, find yourself in this uh, field of uh, technology? I don't think it's a very interesting story. I started in uh, 8200 <laughs> <laughs> and basically the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, by 8200, I was you know, mostly on the uh, uh, operational intelligence product management side. So I'm, personally, I'm not coming from engineering background. I have a degree in history, which I'm very proud of. But uh, I think that once you uh, get into this uh, huge machine in the military that uses uh, a really a wide range of technologies, uh, you know, in order to do uh, uh, things that are unimaginable, just kind of uh, kicks you in. So I think that in retrospect, I didn't plan it. Uh, it wasn't my childhood dream. I guess it just uh, happened throughout my career. Good. And, uh, you know, many of us, or at least some of us, uh, worked in, in the past with uh, VCs. And today you're a general partner in a, in a VC. Can you give us like uh, the one-on-one course of what is a VC and, what, and, and how does it operate? Uh, of course. So um, maybe we'll do a little bit of history, right? I think so. 
entrepreneurs and startups have been around since the beginning of humanity, right? So uh, there is nothing new about people wanting to innovate. I think that what has happened in the past, uh, what was, uh, or the, uh, you know, the VCs, the asset class started in the late 1960s. And I think the difference from what we've known since the beginning of history or the Middle Ages was the fact that if you were in the Middle Ages and, you know, you wanted to become an entrepreneur and you wanted to be, I don't know, a carpenter or something, then you would go to the bank, you would get a loan, and the collateral for that loan would be the actual things that you need to use, the woods, uh, the tools, the output that you have. So from a financial standpoint, banks will be willing to give loans because they had some tangible collateral that they can use against this loan. When you think about information technology, most of the intellectual property resides in people's heads or in lines of code, which is very hard to replicate. Right? So when people said, okay, I need to start a venture and I don't have the, fin the finance to do this, banks were not willing to give any loans in order to start this because they don't have any collateral tangible to protect their loan, right? So, yep. so actually, uh, so this is what kind of created the need to create a new asset class that will be able to fund uh, ideas which are in uh, general are intangible. Uh, and this is basically the basic of VC. What has happened is that, uh, again, it started in the, in the late 1960s. And if you remember companies like uh, Beck Digital, Computers were one of the first companies that were backed by venture capital, uh, etc. And the idea was, uh, okay, since the risk I'm taking is very, very high, and since you as an entrepreneur don't have anything tangible to provide against the loan that I'm giving you, then let's build a different model in which we basically share the upside and not the downside, right? So while banks are usually, or loans in general, a more of a downside protection. I want to, to have a low risk. I, I want to know that I'm going to get my loan back with a certain amount of interest. The amount of risk when I'm talking about intangible assets it's much, is much higher. Therefore, kind of the deal between you as an entrepreneur and me as a VC is let's share the upside. And the best way to share an upside is to become an equity partner in which we are both becoming shareholders in the, uh, in the, in the company. And then we are basically bound together. If at the end of the day, the venture is a failure, and then our shares are worth zero, and I lose the money that I was willing to put inside. And if the company is successful, then uh, the share could be worth significantly more than what I invested at the beginning. So the idea is for intangible assets, the risk is higher. Therefore, we would like to share a share of the upside rather than protection of the downside, right? So that's kind of the uh, economic rationale behind what, what a VC is. Uh, the way kind of jumping 40 or 50 years ahead to where we are today, VC at the end of the day is an investment asset class. Most of the VCs, definitely the large ones, they uh, are comprised of what we call an LPGP relationship, in which the LPs stands for limited partners, are basically in most cases institutional investors. When we are talking institutional investors, we are talking about pension funds, university endowments, et cetera, right? So people like you and me that get a salary and part of the salaries go to our pension fund, a certain part of that pension also finds its way at the end to a VC or a private equity firm, right? So these are the institutional and they give the money to people like ourselves, which are called GP, general partners, that are basically money managers, right? So we take 
the money from, uh, we raise the money from the limited partners. We have a pool of capital and we uh, need to deploy that capital into companies, become shareholders. Because we are shareholders, we also get a right to appoint people to the board of directors of the company. So we work together with the company from a board position throughout their life cycle. And then when it's time to provide to what, what is called in the industry an exit, which will be interesting to talk what type of exits are there, if it will be interesting for you. But when it's time to provide exits and liquidity, then uh, you know, we take uh, the money, which is our share of the, of the worth, share worth and distribute it back to our limited partner. Right? So that's basically the way it works. And would all VCs be equal in the sense that all of them are the same size, all of them doing the same things or? No, absolutely not. And that's a very good question because, you know, you can ask me, okay, what is, what is the difference between VCs or what, what are the VCs? What is the strat- different strategy of VCs, right? And in general, I think that we can point to three or four major kind of criteria in which a VC determines their strategy. Uh, one, which you referred to, is the size of the VC, right? It's a very different strategy to manage $50 million than to manage $500 million. And maybe later it will have time, I'll explain why is it so different, okay? Uh, but it's very, so size is one thing that is very important. The other thing that is very important is uh, geographical focus. Definitely in early stage, the network or the way for you to access is very local. So uh, we are a VC which is focused on Israeli entrepreneurs. Right? Mostly in Israel, could be Israelis that live outside, but in most VCs, they have some kind, definitely the early stage, have some kind of the geographical focus. They work in the US, they work in Europe, they work in China, they work in Israel. So that is one, one uh, element. A third element uh, would be the stage, uh, meaning there's a very, it's a very different to run an early stage venture which invests in seed rounds or A, round, a rounds, and I think the important thing over there is that still you do not have any significant revenue, you don't have any financial statements, right? So most of the decision-making is based about understanding the technology, the market potential, a lot of emphasis on the potential in the future rather than, rather than on the already realized potential, yeah. uh, right? So, and that's unlike maybe growth VCs or private equity that already coming into companies that have significant revenue and financial metrics, et cetera. And it's a kind of a more of a straightforward uh, way to do this, right? So a stage is a very important element. And the fourth and last one will be kind of uh, what areas of uh, investments are, are we focusing, right? But we, have, we are finding more and more uh, um, VCs that are more focused on that are doing only medical devices or even within IT, they choose to do only cybersecurity or only, you know, automotive or whatever. So these are basically, again, the four elements that comprise the strategy of a VC. Very interesting. And you, you spoke about, uh, we will speak about exit, exits and exit strategies and stuff like this, but before going there, so there are different kinds of VCs, this is clear, and you talked about the size and you talked about the location and the region and also the nature of what uh, the VC is doing. So many of the entrepreneurs lately I'm meeting is uh, looking also into a, some kind of an angel. So angels are also in your eyes a kind of a VC or a, or a different brand of... Uh... So again, I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's not that you really can set the boundaries exactly, right? But in general, the taxonomy which is used in the industry, 
angels are usually uh, high net worth individuals, right? And in general, we kind of uh, segment a startup by the level that, so angels are usually, again, high net worth individuals. Many of them have been former entrepreneurs themselves that have done really well. And they usually, again, not in all cases, but in general, they will usually uh, come very, very early, right? So really kind of partner with, uh, you know, two entrepreneurs and a PowerPoint, and a PowerPoint presentation, right? Putting the first $100,000 in, maybe half a million, maybe a million, you know, in order to kind of uh, uh, really continue the market research, maybe the first prototype of the product, et cetera, et cetera. This is when the angels will, will come. And a later stage, the term VC can be used to describe the entire industry, but in our case, VCs are more of an institutional early stage, right? So when you're looking at kind of the first big checks, the $5 million, the first $5 million check that go into the company or $10 million that goes into the company, it will be considered to be classic VCs, which are, again, doing early stage. Again, could be C, the A round. So this is usually around uh, the first, I would say, delivery of the product to the market, the friction, the first friction in the, in the market, the first customers doing kind of uh, building really the first, uh, first level infrastructure of the company, hiring the, your first VP sales, you know, your first VP marketing, uh, putting some IT in space, uh, opening your first offices. So really kind of the first thing that you need to do of really becoming from just two or three people into, into a company. This is a classic VC stage. When you get, and, and VC, again, I'm really, really generalizing here, right? But VCs usually play the important role of funding companies until they reach some kind of revenue, kind of a rule of thumb could be $10 million of annual run rate in revenue is kind of a classic number by which until that number, usually companies are being supported by early stage VCs. From that moment more, there are either what we call late stage VCs or early growth funds that usually already have some kind of financial metrics. They can write larger checks, 20 or $30 million, take the company to the next level. So it's basically angel VC, uh, early growth funds, growth funds, and private equity, right? These are kind of the levels, different levels of the funding ecosystem based on the stage that the company is in. And, and generally speaking, would you say that VCs are hunters because there are hundreds of uh, entrepreneurs out there and hundreds of companies at different stages? How do you find them or, or they need to find you? What's the... Uh... So uh, we believe that, uh, and we in Viola have kind of a saying, right, that uh, in order to make a good investment, you need to have uh, two traits, access and judgment, right? Access meaning I know about the company, I know about the entrepreneurs, I know that there is a deal, I met with them, I did my due diligence, I, and I have a real chance of handing over a term sheet to fund the company, right? Without having this, I wouldn't have any. The other element, which tends to be less important, is what we call judgment, uh, meaning we saw the company, we knew uh, we had an access to it. We had a real chance of investing in that company, but for whatever reason, we decided not to do it. And then five years later, you find out that's a billion dollar company, right? So you had the access, but you didn't have the right judgment process uh, to know that, right? And, it's a, and I think that we, at least internally in our, uh, in our partnership, 
we have this kind of, uh, we always try to balance, you know, we always need the access, which is based on uh, obviously, uh, and I will get to your question of how do we find them, but we always need to get the access. But history tells us that a lot of the mistakes that we made were made on the judgment side, right? We saw the company, we knew it, we just completely missed it of how significant could this uh, could, could company this be. And could it, it could be that we, either we misjudged the character of the founder or we thought that the market is not going to be big and it suddenly was bigger than it all for whatever reason. Okay, this was uh, indeed the follow-up question I had. Is it just the characteristics of the people or it's also missing sometimes the potential of the market and sometimes the... Uh... Uh, so again, you know, when, when you go over a VC, uh, a checklist of VC, you know, I can come down to, I don't know, 10 or 20 different KPIs that we follow, right? It's the people, it's the market, it's the technology, it's the terms of the deal itself, it's the competitive advantage, it's the location. I can come up with 10 or 20 parameters. At the end of the day, when you are early and kind of, uh, you know, telling here a secret to the audience, only two parameters we think really matters is the people and the size of the market, right? So uh, uh, the size of the market could be the size of the market today, but it could be the projected size of the market five years from now if it's a really new market. And at the end of the day, these are the two most important parameters. And this is all, I think it's also important to understand that usually when we do our first meetings with entrepreneurs, we are not necessarily trying to dive into the technology or what's the real algorithm behind this or what's, uh, you know, exactly the financial model, et cetera, et cetera, because these are the two most important things just for, for the efficiency of both sides. You try to nail those two things, right? Is the market big enough in order to assume that if this is successful, it really can, can be a significant company just by the sheer size of, uh, of, uh, of the market? And uh, the second is whether you have uh, the right people that needs, that needs to do, that, that are able to, uh, to do so. So this is what we usually try to get in a first meeting, and these are the two uh, most important things. And obviously, when we miss, uh, going back to your question, we usually miss on one of those issues. Uh, either we misjudge the market or we misjudge the people. So share with me, just you know, to whet my appetite, share with me a success story. Two individuals or three individuals that went into your office, you had the hunch, you bet, and uh, it became like, boom. So, actually, we have several stories. Now I need to, to not, not to... Uh, <laughs> In a minute. Uh, not, not, to, not, not to insult anyone, right? But, okay. So you can share too. Uh, well, definitely, you know, one of, one of the companies that I'm, you know, personally very proud of is, is uh, Redis Labs. Which is now which is now a unicorn in the IT in the IT space. Yeah, and you know when when uh, when I invested, they had basically uh, zero revenue, right? But uh, they're two uh, Israeli entrepreneurs, actually veterans, right? It wasn't their first startup. They knew what they were talking about. I think that they had a really unique way of uh, fundraising they kind of they had some angel money before we talked about it earlier right so they had, had some angel money before and for about a year uh they didn't ask for money uh they came to my office uh offer any staff the founders uh came to my office every quarter and they said we just want to update you 
we're not asking for money. We have enough money. Maybe we'll fundraise a year later. Uh, we just want to update you and have a conversation. Let's exchange views. What do we think about the market? Let's show you about our progress, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think it was very interesting, both on the personal side, right, to create that chemistry uh, with them. It was very good in kind of to follow the progress of uh, what has happened and how they performed. And then we said, okay, now we are raising money. It was relatively an easy process on, on, on my side because I already kind of knew about the market, knew about the people, was able to follow, to follow them, et cetera. And, you know, we made the investment and the company now is approaching, you know, $100 million of ARR uh, with a unicorn valuation, with several rounds of investment that we've done with the best uh, investors in the world, et cetera. Right? So that's kind of a classic story. I must tell you that this story happened in 2013. Today, the market is so competitive that this story probably could not happen today, right? So to, today, the ability to really work with founders, uh, meet them every quarter, you know, getting to know them, et cetera, is probably not possible in today's environment. And you have to be more competitive and make uh, quicker decisions and, you know, kind of bet uh, much earlier than develop those relationships, right? But that's an interesting story. Another interesting story, again, we invested in a company by the name of Iron Source, which is, again, one of uh, the biggest unicorns in, in Israel. And actually, there it was definitely a love at first sight with the, with the founders. You know, it has company already had some revenue. We were not expert in the market. I mean, we all come with our own backgrounds and expertise, but we were not very. Uh, and, and it was purely a bet about you know these are the kind of people that had such energy and such enthusiasm and such professionalism and such a uh, um, can-do attitude to solving the problem that is, okay, we are now here, you know, we think that the market big, is big enough. It seems like it has an endless potential. We don't really know, but uh, the ingredients of the team were so strong that we just better them. And again, the rest is history. So these are just kind of, you know, two different, very different processes that we read with, with founders and entrepreneurs. To right. Now, you've mentioned several times so far the term uh, ARR. So maybe walk, walk, walk us through, first of all, what it is, and, and second, how do you associate it to, the, uh, to a company's success? So I think that definitely the biggest technological revolution that we've seen in the past uh, 20 years is definitely the move, uh, I mean, software-wise, is, is definitely the move for, uh, to the cloud, right? And basically, the move to the cloud has uh, created a huge shift in the business model, right? So when you talk to technical people, it's easier to install and it's easier, you know, to scale and, and all the good aspects of the technology behind moving to the cloud. But actually, the, the very big, the bigger revolution, I think, was when we moved to the cloud with software, we all call it SaaS, right? Uh, meaning that suddenly, uh, when I'm using a software, software is becoming more a utility than something that you own, right? So, so from a purely legal perspective, when I buy a license or I used to buy a license of, I don't know, Oracle CRM or Microsoft Windows or whatever, I would install it on my server or my desktop. And from a legal standpoint, I would actually own this 
piece of software is actually mine as this software license. I'm the owner of that specific license. Once I'm using something from the cloud, I'm actually, and, and by the way, as the owner of the software, I'm in charge of the entire uh, production cycle. I need to find a place on the server and a place in the data center. I need to install it and I need to, to support it and I need to do whatever is needed in order for it to run. Upgrade it. Yeah. Or upgrade it and do whatever we, uh, we need to do. Once we move to the cloud and as actually consuming the software, it's becoming more of like, uh, like I'm using electricity or like I'm using water, right? And if you think about electricity, electricity is really cloud, right? I mean, electricity is being generated somewhere with power plants that are uh, distributed. You don't really know uh, where, and you consume it uh, wherever, wherever you need. And, and how, so, so this, is, this is a major change in which software became from something that you own to something that you use. And therefore, the entire concept is I'm not paying once for my software by I'm paying uh, for the usage of it. The same way that I'm paying for electricity every month based on, the, of, of, on what I'm using yeah. or, based, or, the same way that, or, or based or the same way that I'm paying my cable, the TV cable provider, but I'm paying each month. Now, you can tell me, okay, but you know, the concept is not that, uh, it's not that uh, new. I mean, we've been paying, you said yourself, you've been paying utilities for tens of years, right? So what's so new about it? And I think that what is really new is that software, because of the nature and kind of the market pool, uh, have experienced what we call hyper-growth uh, recurring revenue models, right? So I think that the concept of recurring revenue has been used by utilities for years, but they've been growing um, slowly, 2% a year, 5% a year, 10% a year. What we found out in the past 10 years is that when companies uh, are growing very, very fast, like if they double their revenue or triple their revenue every year, which happens a lot in early stage startups, right? Then, uh, like many exponential things, uh, the economics behind it start to uh, uh, behave very, very differently from what we are seeing, right? So you need to make a lot of upfront investment in order to acquire a customer, but the customer is going to pay you only month by month. So it's going to take time for the revenue to ramp up, et cetera, right? So how do you build, build how do you measure this? And the entire uh, concept of high growth software company has basically created a new kind of economy, which 10 years ago when it started, there weren't any books of, about it. You couldn't learn it in the university. Uh, you know, I'm a graduate of, uh, of, I have a degree in economics, never studied those business models, uh, you know, in the university. You do your classic, uh, you know, accounting stuff and, you know, some, some business modeling, but it really had nothing to do. And, and the way that companies behave and revenue grew was in a completely different way than it was before. So basically what has happened kind of, uh, you know, in the past 10 years is a complete new set of operational KPIs was created in order to describe and measure the progress and the performance of those high growth recurring revenue companies which are mostly cloud companies in nature. One, and this is a, a very uh, you know, long introduction to answer your question, what is ARR? So ARR actually stands for annual recurring revenue. And the idea behind this is basically saying, listen, if, uh, you know, if revenue was always kind of the leading KPI in most financial statements that we know since the beginning of days, 
when companies grow very fast, so let's say companies will grow, I don't know, 50% quarter of a quarter, right? So they will have, I don't know, $100 in Q1, and then in Q2, they will have $150 of revenue, and then in Q3, they already have 225, and then in Q4, they will have already close to 400. So suddenly at the end of the year, saying, listen, why in Q4, I'm doing four times more than I did in Q1. Actually, what I did in Q1 doesn't matter anymore. I mean, it's so back into the past, although it's been only a year, that what I did in January and February actually doesn't represent at all the pace that I am in today, right? And because of some other elements of predictability of recurring revenue model that I'm not sure we have the time to dive into today, the industry has developed this KPI, which is basically saying, if you are growing fast, all I care is about what you did in the last quarter of the last month. I annualize it. How do I annualize it? In the last quarter, I just multiple it by four. And this is basically saying, okay, if I do nothing, this is my current at 12 months from now, my revenue is going to be at least 12 times what it was the month today. And this is where the run rate is coming, uh, is coming from, right? And people have uh, came to the conclusion, and again, I, I hope it wasn't kind of too complicated, but people came to the conclusion that in high growth company, ARR is a much better predictor of the health of the company and a, a projection to the future than just purely looking at revenue because revenue can be very misleading if you look too, bad, uh, too much to the past. We hope you enjoyed part one of this discussion. Tune in next week to hear part two in which Ronan discusses measuring profit, the new way of doing business in a virtual world and more. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlotte, directly on LinkedIn.